about a trillion dollars of the commercial mortgage market is office space. 15% of all office mortgages are coming due in any given year. You remember the Silicon Valley bank collapse from a few months back? That was $200 billion. So if literally every penny of office mortgage was defaulted on in a given year over the next several years, the impact would be about the size of that SVB bank collapse. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to grow their wealth by investing in US real estate. I'm your host, Reed Goosens, and so far, I've acquired over $800 million worth of investments on various properties across the United States. On this podcast, I interview go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business to learn more about their investment journey and the cutting-edge strategies they are applying towards building a legacy. For more on growing your own wealth and or buy investing in the US, visit www www.reedgoosens.com. To end the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jay Scott. Now, Jay is an entrepreneur, investor, advisor, author, and partner at Bar Down Investments, focusing on buying and repositioning large multifamily properties across the United States. In the past 14 years, Jay has bought, built, rehab, sold, lent on, and held over $150 million worth of property here in the continental US. Jay holds a strategic advisor role in several different companies, and he's an author of five different books on bigger pockets, all about real estate investing. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today this year. His incredible knowledge and insights about the world of real estate investing here in the United States. But enough of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Jay. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Reed? Good, good, good. We're just, uh, for those listeners listening in, we are recording when another hurricane is bearing down on, Cal- uh, I was going to say on California, on Florida. You're on the other coast. Is that correct? Yeah. How's it going? Yeah, it's going great. Literally just started raining about 20 minutes ago. So hopefully uh, the, the power stays on for our discussion. But uh Hopefully not as bad as last year. I think this one's going to miss us by a little bit, so uh, not, n- not too concerned. Well, not too concerned, but if you're watching the insurance market lately, it has been going mental, and I, I don't want to dive dr- straight into the, the topics, but uh, more hurricanes. The uh, I don't know how people are getting insurance done in Florida right now, but, 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 but a topic for another day. With that being said, we'd like to dive in and ask the first question for all our guests, and can you rewind the clock and tell me how you made a fir- your first ever dollar as a kid back in the day? Yeah. So let's see. I made my first money when I was 11 years old. I grew up in Maryland and we used to get a lot of snow there. These days we don't get nearly as much snow, but we used to get a lot of snow. And, and I remember going out with, uh, with three of my best friends when I was 11 years old and we would shovel snow for $20 per walkway. And I still remember coming back at the end of that first day. I think I remember the first day we did it. And we had like $140 or something and we split it between four of us. And I thought, wow, I'm never going to have to work another day in my life. (laughs) Walk us through the corporate, Jay, if there was one or the story before getting involved in real estate investing. Yeah. So I'm a tech guy by education and probably mindset. I, I have an electrical engineering degree. I have an MBA. And I actually spent the bulk of my career in Silicon Valley in California, worked for companies like Microsoft and eBay. And so did that for about 15 years, met my wife back in 2006, 2008, we decided to get married. When we decided to get married, we knew that the lifestyle we were leading in in Silicon Valley just wasn't the lifestyle we wanted to raise a family. We were working 50, 60 hours a week. She was traveling three and a half weeks a month. I was traveling a couple of weeks a month. We never saw each other. And so we both, when we decided to get married, we both said, hey, let's figure out something else. 
And so we quit our jobs. We moved to the East Coast. And that's something else ended up being real estate. And, and we fell into real estate in 2008, just accidentally, pretty much. And here we are 15 years later and, and still doing real estate. And where'd you start? Because obviously, 08 was the crash. And, and we're, talk- we're going to get into the spoiler alert, potentially yeah. another crash coming up. <laughs> but you know, we, it was the big one, right? Everyone, everyone, you know, a lot of people got their start back in, in that time. Yeah. Well, luckily, we were not smart enough to know that real estate probably wasn't the right place to be back in 2008. We we had come from the tech industry. Literally, I was in my mid-30s. I'd never purchased a house before. We had just bought our first house and I couldn't change a light bulb. I knew nothing about real estate. And my wife, while we were like sitting in our living room trying to figure out what that next career we were going to have was, we were watching TV. I think HGTV was on and there was a show on flipping houses. And my wife was like, well, while we figure out what we want to do next, let's flip a house. Seems like something fun. And she's she's a, a creative design type person. So she really liked the aspect of redesigning a house and decorating it and and picking finishes and things like that. And I said, Well, I have no idea what I'm doing, but okay, let's let's give this thing a try. And so summer of 2008, not knowing any better, we went out, we bought a couple of houses and we started renovating them. And the first one didn't sell quickly, but the second one seemed to go pretty well. So we did a third and a fourth and a fifth and a 10th. And before we knew it, we were real estate investors and, and and we stopped looking for that next thing to do because real estate was it. Was it all focused in Florida when you started? No, actually, we moved to Georgia. We moved to Atlanta, Georgia, suburb of Atlanta. And so from 2008 to 2013, we uh, we flipped a couple hundred houses outside of Atlanta, Georgia. From 2013 to 2018, we were living in Maryland. We did some development and and some house flips up there. And then in 2019, we moved down to Florida, which is where we started doing uh, multifamily. Actually, not doing it down here, but when we moved down here, that's when we started doing multifamily. And most of our multifamily stuff is is around the country. In the same time, when did you start writing for Bigger Pockets and becoming uh, a Bigger Pockets guru, so to speak? And I hate using that word, but there is so many. I've got five different books behind you. When did that that sort of um, bug started to to come around and say, you know what, I want to put all my ideas in a book? I've always been a big fan of teaching and educating. Um, I'm one of those people that if I know something, I see no reason why I shouldn't be sharing it with others. There are so many people that I can credit for helping me learn, whether it was in the tech industry, whether it's in the real estate industry or anything else I do. I've been fortunate to have so many people that have helped me over the years. There's no good reason for me not to give back when I can. And so when we decided to start flipping houses in 2008, I started a blog called 123flip.com. Hmm. I think it's still out there. I haven't touched it in a decade, but I think it's still out there. And uh, basically, the goal of the blog was to document our flips in gory detail. So every day, I would take pictures, video. I would talk about like how much we were spending on renovations. I would talk about all the good things that were happening, all the bad things that were happening. At the end of every project, I would basically go through the P&L, the profit and loss, Exactly how much money we we spent, how much we bought the property for, sold it for, all of our expenses, our renovation costs, so that people could see down to the penny how much money we were making or losing on our flips. And I think this was pretty revolutionary at the time because if you if you watched any of the flip TV shows, they would gross the numbers up. And so it was like uh, bought the property for a hundred, 
and put in 50 and sold it for 400. So they made 150,000. Well, we all know that's not true. There were other expenses. There were holding costs along the way. There were closing costs. There were commissions, but nobody ever talked about that. And so every deal looked like a great deal. And so we were documenting and we started to get a following on our blog because people appreciated the fact that we weren't just talking about the good stuff. We weren't just putting out big numbers, lots of big profit numbers. We were talking about the times where we made mistakes. We were talking about the learnings that we had along the way and and the times that it was difficult to sell or difficult to rent. And I think people really appreciated that. And from 2008 to 2012 or so, started getting a, a big following on the blog. I was a, a member of Bigger Pockets and and had learned a lot of what I knew from Bigger Pockets. I was friends with the founder of Bigger Pockets, Josh Dorkin. And in 2012, I decided why not take all of this information that was on the blog, all the articles I had written and, and the case studies I had done and put it into a book so it's just easier for people to to read and to learn. The goal was never to make money off of it. The goal wasn't really anything other than just to be able to take the knowledge I had and put it in a nice format so that other people could learn. And when I finished, I went to Josh again, the founder of Bigger Pockets, and I said, I have these two books because it was one book, but one chapter ended up being like 300 pages. So I said, okay, I'm going to turn that into a second book. And I said, I have these two books. Do you want to like publish it with me? And he said, well, I don't know. Why not? And so he ended up publishing the book through Bigger Pockets. We were selling it on Bigger Pockets. We were selling it on Amazon. And that was the start of Bigger Pockets publishing. And it was also the start of my writing. And over the years, Bigger Pockets is now one of the the largest real estate publishers on the planet. And I've been fortunate enough to to write five books. Is it all been about flipping on those five books? No. So I like to find topics that are one of two things. Either it's a book that I feel like has never been written before, something that that I feel like it's just not out there, or a book that I feel like I can do better than anything that's already out there. And mm-hmm. so the f- first book was on flipping houses, lots of flipping houses books out there, but I always felt like they were missing the nuts and bolts. It was a lot of rah, 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 and motivation. And let me tell you about how much money I'm making. And I wanted to write a book that was more step-by-step how to flip a house. And so I I felt like that wasn't out there. So I did that. My second book that I wrote at the same time, one chapter of the Flipping Houses book was how to estimate rehab costs. And that chapter ended up being a 300-page chapter. So I turned it into its own book because there wasn't another, another book out there on how to estimate rehab costs. And to this day, I don't think there's another book out there on that topic. So I, I was really proud that I could put a book out that didn't exist. A few years later, my wife and I, along with our friend Mark Ferguson, wrote a book called The Book on Negotiating Real Estate. And I felt like there, was, there wasn't a good negotiating book out there for real estate investors. So I wrote that one. And then a year after that, 2018, I wrote a book all about economics and economic cycles called Recession-Proof Real Estate Investing, because I felt like the big topic that a lot of real estate investors were missing that that they really didn't understand as well as they could was economic cycles and how they affect us as investors. And then finally, last year, I released a book called Real Estate by the Numbers with a good friend of mine, Dave Meyer, who is a VP of analytics at Bigger Pockets. And that book is basically all the numbers and formulas and math that go into investing, real estate investing and other types of investing, because I'm a big believer that if you're going to be an investor, you need to understand the math. It's not just about the math, but you absolutely have to have a good foundation in in math and formulas and the numbers to be a good investor. No, I think that's an incredible 
what's what's really the, nearly like a portfolio of books, you know. And, and as you've done one book, it sort of leads to the next book, and leads to the third book, and leads to the fourth book. And it sounds like it's a very much a, a passion of uh, of love because you wouldn't. I know I've written two books, and tell you what, they're they're not easy, right? So repurposing content for those people listening out there, if you can repurpose any content, I highly recommend you do it. And Jay clearly has done that a lot, and obviously you've done more than just repurposing content, but. But one of the major things I want to get into is, is around the economics because you and I spent two days recently. When was that? In June, May? June. I can't. June. Uh, on a ranch in Dallas. Got to know you a little bit more. I've heard about you a lot and really got to know how you, you like to think and how you tick. Economics. And, and, and the big thing on everyone's mind right now has been the Fed and rising interest rates. You mentioned earlier 2008, right? So I probably know the answer to this question, but we want to ask her anyway. Are you seeing any hallmarks of 2008 or pre-2008 happening now? And what's your sort of overall gut of, of what's, where we're headed in this economic tightening? Well, let me start with the, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, we're all really just guessing when it comes to economics and where things are headed with the economy. I'm a big believer that history is a good predictor of the future and and the data is a good predictor of, of what's likely to happen. But please, I hope nobody will listen to this and assume I know what I'm talking about because at the end of the day, I'm just guessing like everybody else. That said, I don't think what we're seeing right now is at all similar to 2008. Now, some of the symptoms that we're seeing are, and, and the bigger one being that uh, housing affordability, housing prices are through the roof. There's no denying that what we're seeing these days very much mimics what we saw with housing prices and affordability back in 2005, 2006. That said, the fundamentals, the foundational issues that the economy is facing today are very, very different than what we saw back before the Great Recession. Back then, while we did have affordability issues, a lot of the other issues that we were seeing were in the the banking sector. There was a lot of liquidity issues. There were problems with these things called mortgage-backed securities. So basically, when when uh, banks make loans against real estate, they don't like to necessarily hold those loans long term. They want to cash out. They want to they they use them as assets and they sell them off to raise capital. And so what they would do is they bundle up a lot of those loans and sell them off to other banks and other investors. The problem was that a lot of those loans were made to poor borrowers, borrowers that that weren't likely to repay them. And so these became toxic assets that values went to essentially zero. These days, the foundational issues that we're seeing are very, very different. For the most part, the loans that have been originated over the last several years are, are pretty good. Interest rates are low, so a lot of borrowers aren't in, in distress right now. And so I don't think there's a lot of risk around foreclosures like we had in 2008. These days, the bigger risks are not in the real estate sector. 2008 was a real estate crisis. 2008 was an economic downturn that was caused because we had foundational issues in real estate. These days, it has very little to do with real estate. Real estate, again, is a symptom. High house prices are a symptom. Unaffordability is a symptom. The real issues are around other parts of the economy, especially supply and demand, inflation. We do see some, some potential banking issues here and there. But for the most part, the, the issues that we're seeing these days are more a result of money printing, 
corporate profit taking and the inflation that's been caused by those things. And so I don't expect that what we have today is going to play out anything like 2008. But it's also worth mentioning that if you go back 150 years, we've had 35, 36 recessions, depending on whether you want to think we were in a recession over the past year. And of those 35 or 36 recessions, every single one of them is different. And so it's important to recognize that while a lot of people listening to this are probably on the younger side, if you're you're in your 20s or if you're in your 30s, 2008 was probably a very dramatic or, or difficult event for you if you were in your 20s or 30s. And you probably think of a recession as what happened in 2008, because that's the only one you remember. The the one previous than that was 2001. Anybody in their 20s and 30s now was probably 10 years old or younger when 2001 happened. So people tend to assume that a recession is what we saw in 2008. But the reality is 2008 was a very, I don't want to say once in a lifetime, but pretty much a once in a lifetime event. Most recessions are nothing like that. Most recessions, yeah, we do have high unemployment. We do have uh, people struggling. We have some inflation leading up to it. We have other issues, but we don't have the types of issues that we saw in 2008. So for anybody that thinks, okay, we're heading towards a recession, and because we're heading towards a recession, that means we're going to see an environment like 2008. It's unlikely. If you go back to 2001, it wasn't a real estate recession. It was a recession caused by the tech industry and by 9-11. And yeah, things weren't good, but it wasn't like 2008. You go back to the early uh, 90s or the late 80s, we had this uh, recession that was caused by this thing called the savings and loan crisis. It was basically a a banking crisis Mm -hmm. and didn't have a big impact on real estate. Go back to the 70s and early 80s, we had four recessions between the late 60s and the early 80s. And in fact, real estate boomed. The recessions didn't impact real estate at all. It was mostly caused by inflation, similar to what we're seeing today, and other things that that had nothing to do with real estate. Likewise, if you go all the way back to the 1800s, there have been very few recessions that have had any real major impact on real estate. It just so happens that 2008 did, and it was such a big event that a lot of people associate recessions with collapsing real estate prices. But the reality is most most recessions don't involve collapsing real estate prices, and I don't expect that the the upcoming recession, if we were to have one, is going to involve real estate crashing. Okay. Very interesting. Because before I get into that, uh, talk to me about corporate profits because mm-hmm. you know, I'm not – I'm a layman. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a yep. couch economist, if you want to call it, right? Like I, I pay attention, but I don't know – Every the ins and outs of it, and I think a lot of airtime has been spoken about the printing of the money in COVID, right? And you know, as an outsider, I'm originally from Australia. I don't think the safety net Americans really know what a safety net is, right? And 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 it was just like a like you know like a throttle on a boat. It was like stop and then like full force, right? They could it could have come halfway up and you would have probably still saved it. But again, yep. a joke in gist that. America doesn't know what <laughs> so you know to have a safety net and they went a little bit overboard thus is causing inflation. And so everyone's talking about printing of money, right? But talked about corporate profits because I think uh, particularly on this show and and people I, I I talk to corporate profits doesn't really come up in in a conversation when you talk about inflation. So maybe you just want to touch on that a little bit as well. Yeah, and so uh let me before anybody starts sending me hate mail, don't think that I'm not saying that the printing of money hasn't caused 
much of the inflation that we've seen. Right. Um, certainly, printing of money can lead to inflation. It is interesting, though, there's not necessarily a direct correlation like a lot of people want to assume. Keep in mind, we printed about $8 trillion since COVID. We printed close to $8 trillion back after 2008, and we saw relatively low inflation. I mean, less than 2% for much of the decade between 2010 and 2020. And so despite the fact that we printed almost the, the same amount of money after the Great Recession, we saw very little inflation for the next decade. After 2020, after COVID, we saw a tremendous amount of inflation. Now, there are some differences. Number one, in 2008, and I'm not ignoring your question. I'll come back to your no, question. No, keep going. But in 2008, the way we printed that money and released that money was basically through banks. We gave a lot of money to banks, put it in reserve, and we told banks, go lend it out, go lend it to businesses, go lend it to consumers, to house buyers. And so the banks kind of trickled a bunch of that money out and also kept a lot of that money in reserves. In 2020, we didn't trickle the money out through, through banks. We basically injected it into the veins of the economy by literally sending sti stimulus checks to every American, 200 million Americans. We literally handed businesses this PPP money and we said, you don't have to repay us. And so we, we put that money directly into the veins of the economy as opposed to trickling it out. So that was one difference. But if you look at, at several think tanks uh, over the last year or two have done some analysis, bipartisan think tanks, left and right, that both sides kind of agree that up to about 30% of the inflation that we've seen over the last two years has been driven by large companies taking corporate profits. And what I mean by that is over the last year and a half since, since kind of uh, uh, the end of COVID or since the vaccines came out, we started to see supply chains start to open up. And there was a lot of pent-up demand for everything from oil for our cars and consumer goods and services and entertainment and all of these things. Americans had all this money they had saved up during COVID that was basically sent to them that they were looking to spend. And so there was all this pent-up demand, but we still had some supply chain constraints. It was still hard to get these, these goods and these services because supply chains were all messed up. And so what companies realized was they could raise prices well above what the typical supply and demand curve would indicate should be the efficient price of these goods and services. And people were still paying for it. People were just crazy to spend money. And so especially in industries like food, like oil and gas, we saw companies basically hiking prices up well above where, where they should be on the supply and demand curve. And people were paying those prices because there was just so much pent up demand. And for about the last year and a half, we saw profit margins increase, especially in, in these larger industries. And so uh, a lot of work has been done to, to show that a good percentage, again, up to about 30% of the total inflation that we've seen wasn't necessarily driven by the printing of money, wasn't necessarily driven by the fact that supply chains were constrained, but was driven because big companies were raising their prices arbitrarily to make more money. Now, mm -hmm. we live in a capitalist society. You could argue, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, it's not good for the economy. It's not good for consumers. And it had a considerable impact on inflation. And, and probably still is having a considerable impact. 
it's still having considerable impact. Um, so what we've seen is that profit margins ha- have started to contract. Profit margins, at least again, we're talking about some really big companies where we saw a lot of this. Ironically and sadly, a lot of the mom and pops were in a very different situation because they didn't control the supply chains because they didn't have the the distribution channels or the brand recognition or the monopoly in that that a lot of these big companies had. They actually struggled. They weren't able to raise their prices. And and uh, so we, we've seen a lot of smaller and mom and pop type businesses that have struggled since COVID ended, while at the same time, we've seen, again, a lot of these big businesses like oil companies and, and these big food service companies that have done tremendously well. And I think it's a good metaphor for what we've seen in this country in general is that that we're seeing this this wealth gap, this this divide between those at the top of the socioeconomic spectrum, whether it's individuals or companies, and those at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum, again, whether it's individuals or small mom and pop businesses. And that middle class, that that kind of those those people that the economy has relied on for the past hundred years is, I was going to say slowly, but is actually quickly going away. Right. How sticky is this? Like in terms of if someone puts a price up, if you go down to a local store and you put your price up 30% and people are willing to pay for it, like is there any data or have you read any data around on the corporate profit side I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the printing side, I'm talking about the corporate profit side that goes back to where it was so we're not paying. Because I, I, you know, I know when I order my food and you know, buy Uber Eats or something, you know, you order a $20 meal, all of a sudden – it's 40 bucks with all the fees and stuff on top of it. And I'm not saying that's the sort of cause of it, but, but is there any stickiness to this corporate profit gouging? I don't know if that's the right word, uh, you know, on, on the consumer. I don't have any hard data. So mm-hmm. um, everything I'm about to say is basically just my opinion and, and based on my experience. Sure. Certainly when it comes to things like oil and gas prices, there's a good bit of elasticity there. And that that basically is is proven by the fact that Gas prices aren't at seven, eight, nine, ten dollars a gallon anymore. We see inflation impact things like food, where you go to the grocery store and food is more expensive than it was two years ago, and it's likely to continue to get more expensive. We don't see deflation for a, a lot of durable goods and commodities and 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 services. Typically, we just see prices going higher and higher. And our best hope is that we can slow down that increase. But then for things like oil and gas, we see a lot of elasticity in prices because we see prices go $5 a gallon, $3 a gallon, $4 a gallon, up and down. And so I think it's going to be very industry dependent. And again, I don't have any data to support that, but but just my uh, my, my experience tells me that for most commodities, durable goods, housing costs, non-housing services, to use a economics term. For most of these things, basically prices only move in one direction. And right. so are they sticky? Yes. Once they go up, they're probably not coming down. Maybe we see a few things like price of eggs occasionally comes down and the price of milk might come down. But in general, food prices, material prices, labor prices, housing prices only move in one direction. And that's why inflation is so scary. Too much inflation is so scary because it's not one of those things we we talk about it being transitory, even if it is to some degree transitory, meaning we don't see high inflation for a really long time. We see compounded inflation. Inflation generally only moves in one direction. And once prices go up, they're probably never coming down. And if they do come down, well, that's going to cause issues that are probably even worse than the inflation itself. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you for that. And I appreciate that because it is something that everyone's got to be made aware of. Like, you know, we're seeing it in our rentals, you know, 
the stuff from payroll to rental pricing has actually come off a little bit and we're seeing that at the coalface of is this going to be a the, the sort of canary in the coal mine to indicate that inflation has been com- has been brought under control because housing is a lagging indicator in um, CPI data and so it's just interesting to see that what's going to stick and what's not going to stick and and I know for a fact like say payroll the porter that I paid used to pay $19 an hour, he ain't going back to 19 bucks an hour because he's got to live in this economy, right? He's got to buy the cheese. He's got to buy the eggs. He's got to buy the, the, the petrol. He's got to pay for the housing. So he's now 25 bucks an hour. You know, yep. So I see it very difficult to go back and rents go down to you know, there's going to be a floor. Something to keep in mind, when, when we talk about a lot of these things, the local, there's going to be a big difference in what we see locally versus nationally. So we will certainly see some areas where uh, housing rents Market rents come down. Places like Boise, Idaho, and Las Vegas, and Phoenix, and LA, and San Francisco, a lot of these places where we saw like a meteoric increase in rents over the last couple of years, rents are bound to come down. But if you look at the national level, I would suggest anybody go out there, go into Google and type in market rent. Fred, F-R-E-D. And Fred is basically the Federal Reserve um, has this website where they put out all of these economic charts and data. So you can see charts for, for pretty much any piece of economic data that you want. So type in rent Fred and look at the historic trend of rents over the last hundred years. And what you're going to find is that rents only go in one direction on a national level. In 2008, they flattened out for a few months. I think back in late 80s or early 90s, they flattened out a little bit. But for the most part, you're going to see that rents over the last 100 years literally only go in one direction, and that's up and to the right. And so even though we might see local variances, we might see certain places where rents are dropping even significantly on the local level, from a national level, inflation is a driver of rents. And inflation pretty much only goes in one direction. And so rents pretty much only go in one direction. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I want to pivot now and talk a little bit about uh, one of the comments you made earlier uh, in and around the increase in interest rates and the differences in, in every economic downturn. One of the big differences that is driving in commercial real estate, and uh, we spoke a little bit of, of this offline is the change in which we work working conditions, which has caused a lot of pain in the office space, which is now causing a lot of pain in lending. And some of those lenders are collateralized with multifamily deals, right? And we, you and I are multifamily. So as much as we like to talk the single about the single family and that being the biggest, like, look what's happening over here, it feels 2008-ish, even though I wasn't involved in real estate yeah. in 2000, it feels 2008-ish in commercial real estate right now. And you've seen- you know, the doomsday of the, the office space potentially being that catalyst to causing a lot of other dominoes to fall. I'm going to stop there and ask you, what do you think about that? Because back to your comments about like every recession is different. And yes, it's not quote unquote a housing problem as you think of it from a single family housing problem, but there is, there is pain on this commercial real estate side. Yeah. And so two things to, to say there. First, let me start with, it's funny, you're, you're an East Coast or a West Coast guy. I'm an East Coast guy. We both have a very probably similar perspective on commercial real estate and office space being from the coasts. And what I would say is if you look at the, the data, there's a very different story that's being told between coastal real estate, especially commercial real estate, 
and Midwest or, or middle of the country type real estate. And so we think of, of commercial and office space as collapsing and, and really struggling. A lot of that's driven by, by work from home in the big cities. But if you were to go off the coast into the center of the country, what you'll find actually instead is that commercial real estate is actually pretty strong. An office hmm. is pretty strong. Now, it so happens that a lot of the office space, the, the more expensive office space, the larger buildings and maybe the bulk of the total value of that office space and commercial space is on the coasts. So it certainly is a bigger crisis than, than, than what I'm representing. But the reality is we, we have to remember all real estate is local. And even the office crisis isn't nearly as bad off the coasts as what we might be seeing on the coasts. Now, that said, let's take a look at the real numbers here. So the total commercial mortgage market is somewhere around four and a half to $5 trillion. About 20% of that is office space. So about a trillion dollars of the commercial mortgage market is office space. Trillion dollars is a big number. But keep in mind that the typical commercial mortgage, office mortgage is seven years in length. And so you can assume that in general, about 15% of all office mortgages are coming due in any given year. So 15% of a trillion dollars, it's about $150 million, or I'm sorry, $150 billion per year in office mortgages coming due. Now, what's $150 billion? It's a big number, but you remember the Silicon Valley bank collapse from, from a few months back? That was $200 billion. So if literally every penny of office mortgage was defaulted on in a given year over the next several years, the impact would be about the size of that SVB bank collapse from a few months ago. Not saying it's nothing. I'm not saying it's, it's not something that wouldn't hurt a lot of investors and wouldn't hurt a lot of midsize and regional banks, but it's not something that's going to collapse the economy. And that's only if we were to lose every penny of that. In reality, 50% of those mortgages may be somewhat distressed, and 50% of them may end up going into default. So 25% of that $150 billion or somewhere $30, $40 billion per year over the next seven years might be at risk. So I don't see this as something that could realistically cause a domino effect in the economy that causes a 2008 type event. Now, you did mention something that was really important. And that's the fact that a lot of these office owners, and it's also worthwhile to point out that that the loan to value for office in general tends to be lower than most other asset classes, generally about 40 to 45%. So if I own an office building that's worth $10 million, I probably have debt on it somewhere in the four to four and a half million dollar range, which is pretty low, which means I don't need to have the building filled to be able to cover my my mortgage payment every month if it's 70% filled, I'll probably be able to do that. But the bigger risk is exactly what you said earlier, Reed, which was that a lot of these office owners, because it's harder to get loans for office space than it is for things like multifamily. A lot of times when these office owners go to banks and say, I want to get a loan, the bank will say, well, it looks like you also own a bunch of apartment complexes as well. Will you cross collateralize those apartment complexes with your office loan and office owners would typically say yes, no reason not to. They weren't concerned about this a few years ago. And so a lot of these office loans are cross-collateralized with multifamily and other commercial type loans so that for these office loans that do go south, where the where they do go uh, into foreclosure, the, the owner has to default. Well, potentially, 
those owners are also going to start losing their multifamily buildings as well. Again, I don't see this as a big risk to the economy in general, but this is a big risk to a lot of large investors. This is a big risk to a lot of investors who own big office portfolios because they probably also own other portfolios of commercial and they could end up losing their entire portfolio as opposed to just the office. And so I do see some distress in the market, but again, not big enough that I think it's going to have a, a big impact on the economy as a whole. I don't even think it's going to have a big in impact on the industry as a whole, simply because there are a lot of investors out there that have very low interest rate loans. There's still a lot of investors out there that have relatively low value loans. Banks were pretty conservative in their lending over the last several years. It wasn't like 2008. And there's a lot of demand out there as well. That's the other big thing. If we started to see defaults, and I think we will start to see more defaults, there's enough demand out there that I think a lot of those distressed properties are going to be absorbed pretty quickly. And I think banks have realized or that they learned their lesson back in 2008 that they don't want all these distressed assets on their balance sheet. They don't want to start taking back all these, these assets if they don't have to. And so I think what we're going to find is banks are going to be willing, and we're already starting to see this, banks are going to be willing to, to work out these loans with owners who are in otherwise good financial shape. I've seen a lot of multifamily owners who have had trouble making their mortgage payments because of higher interest rates or have had trouble buying new rate caps because of, of higher rate cap prices or have been having trouble refinancing because values have come down and they have to bring cash to the table. And a lot of banks are saying, well, let's let's work something out. Let's extend the loan for six months or 12 months or 24 months. And I think we're going to see a lot of banks that are going to be willing to, to work with owners who are otherwise in, in a good position. Mm. Well, you, you mentioned loan to value, and I think that's a very good point. But I, but I do want to stress on the fact there's been a lot of gouging in the multifamily space. 2008 happened, but then 2012 happened with the Jobs Act, and there's been a lot of flood of retail investors, unsophisticated, sophisticated, accredited, whatever you want to call it. But And I know it's relatively still a small percentage of the overall commercial real estate investing, but there is a larger population who's investing directly in commercial real estate today that are starting to see some pain. And do you think the Fed is paying attention to that? Or do you think that that's going to cause more regulatory environment in and around the syndication space, but given that we're both in it? Um, any comments just on that little, that little element of the economy and the changes that have happened over the last 10 years? I think that's going to be a very interesting thing to watch because, again, I think a lot of it's going to boil down to how bad do things get? And if we have a situation where we have like a, a 2008 type meltdown, or it doesn't even have to be that bad, but if we have a meltdown in commercial real estate where a lot of mom and pop investors, accredited but small investors, uh, like the people that you have in your deals, people I have in my deals, if they start to lose a lot of money, I could see the, the SEC start to kind of reverse course on deregulating and, and allowing more mom and pop investors into the industry and go in the other direction where we were. 15 years ago, where it was actually very difficult for mom and pop investors to invest in these alternative assets. I'm hopeful that that's not the case. Now, I will say this, even if it doesn't get so bad that the SEC has to step in and, and increase regulation, I think we are going to see certainly a number of deals fail. I mean, we don't have to have a meltdown to see a lot of distressed assets and a number of deals fail. And when deals fail, we're going to see a lot of investors that lose their money. I already talked to a number of investors that are losing money on deals. I've talked to investors that that have dealt with, there's been some fraud on a couple of deals on, on, in California and in Texas. And so I do know a bunch of people that are starting to lose money. 
And the interesting thing was for 10 years, nobody lost money. And everybody started to think of this as kind of a sure thing. It was an easy way to make 15, 20% annual returns. And it, no, nobody ever questioned the fact that how is it so easy to make 15 or 20% returns when the stock market is only generating 7 or 8% returns and treasuries are only generating 3 or 4% returns? And it didn't occur to anybody that these increased returns came with increased risk. And suddenly, I think we're going to go back to the point where investors start to recognize that returns are correlated to risk. And when you see higher returns, that's going to mean higher risk. And, and it's one of the interesting things um, with, with the economic cycles. Over the years, I mentioned that over the last 150 years, we've seen 35 or so recessions. If you do the math, that's a recession every four to five years. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a recession every four to five years, that means every four to five years, investors are learning the hard lessons. They're learning that nothing's a sure thing, and they're learning that higher return investments have more risk, and those are the ones that you're you're more likely to lose money. Um, and when you learn that every four to five years, it's not a lot of time to make Just. a lot of investments and lose a lot of money. Hmm. But we had the longest economic expansion in history from 2012 to 2000, or from 2009, really, to 2020. And if you think about it, I mean, 2020, the recession we saw then was a blip. So pretty much through 2022, so that's 13 years of economic expansion, whereas typically it's four or five years before we see a recession. We had 12 or 13 years of not seeing a recession. Basically, we had a lot of investors who went the span of two or three normal cycles, not losing money. And what happens when you don't lose money? Your confidence increases, you invest more, you think, I know what I'm doing, I can't lose. And now suddenly people are starting to lose money or going to start losing money. And this is going to be eye-opening because it's not something that's happened for 12 years. And I think there are going to be a lot of people who just started investing after 2008 that this is going to be the first time they recognize that it's possible to lose money in real estate or the stock market or whatever it is. That thing that we, we normally learned every four or five years it's now been 12 years and people are going to have to learn a really hard lesson. Mm. With that being said, I want to and I thank you for that because I think that's it's, it's really incredible. And I want to be conscious of your time. What, what's your crystal ball saying over the next six to 12 months? What, what do you think the Fed is doing and do you think we're going into a recession? So uh, you mentioned Jackson Hole. So Jerome Powell, head of the Fed, spoke at, uh, at, at a conference last Friday where everybody was kind of listening to see whether he was going to say, we're planning to raise rates, we're planning to hold rates steady, or crazy enough, maybe we're planning to cut rates. And he did a really good job of not signaling what we're going to do. In fact, it was the first speech I've heard him give in a long time where I walked away thinking, I have zero idea of where things are headed. He certainly made it sound like he thinks that inflation is still an issue, that it's come down a good bit over the past year, year and a half but that there's still risk there and they're not going to sit back and assume that inflation's been tackled and assume that everything's fine which tells me that the minute that we see any economic data that indicates that inflation isn't fully under control that we may see another rate hike we may see two more rate hikes i think we're we're substantially done with the rate hikes but we could see another quarter or half point over the next 6 months the bigger question is what's going to happen once inflation is under control and everybody's comfortable that inflation's under control. The conventional wisdom was as soon as inflation was under control, everybody expected the Fed to just start cutting rates again. 
But now it's sounding like the Fed isn't going to cut rates unless they see some reason to cut rates, which is typically a recession. Unless they see a recession on the horizon, unless they see unemployment spike, unless they see GDP drop off, unless they see something that indicates that the economy is in trouble, I don't think they're going to start cutting. So the question is, what's going to happen that's going to send the signal to the Fed that we're in, we're, there's, there's trouble brewing? I think we're going to get there. I think we're probably going to get there in the next year. I suspect it's going to be the employment sector. I think we're already starting to see some softening in the jobs market. Not enough that anybody's concerned, not enough that any of the headline numbers are, are, are scary or, or disheartening. But I think we're starting to see small indications that the, the employment sector is breaking. And I think over the next six to 12 months, we could see a spike in unemployment. We could see wages dropping a little bit, or at least not increasing relative to inflation. And so I could see uh, a cut in rates six to 12 months out. I don't think we're going to get back to 0%. I don't think we're going to get back to 2%, but I think rates could get down a point or two to the 3 to 4% range, which would hopefully bring mortgage rates down a little bit, would bring treasury rates down a little bit. I think that'll be good for the economy. I think we need some sort of a recession. I think things need to break a little bit. Um, I think the Fed is saying the same thing. They're, they're, they want something to break because that's going to be the signal that they've really tackled inflation. But we could still be six to 12 months out from that happening. Mm. No, it's, it's interesting because on the last Fed meeting, Jay Powell, Jay Money, however you want to talk about it, he was uh, saying that their internal data was indicating not a recession. Yep. which may which could be you know another way of saying we ain't we ain't cutting rates. Yep. If there's no recession we ain't cutting rates. Yeah. And that's that that's how I read it as well and I think that was the change for a lot of people because everybody assumed as soon as inflation was under control they were going to cut. And now everybody recognizes that they're they're not going to cut for no reason. The nice thing, I mean, we hate having high interest rates. And when I say high, I put it in air quotes because 5 and a quarter, 5 and a half percent interest rates historically isn't that high. It's high for the last 15 years, but historically, it's not that high. But one of the reasons of having interest rates above zero or higher interest rates is that if and when we see a recession, and we will see a recession at some point, when you have higher interest rates, it gives the Fed more room to cut those rates. And when you cut those rates, it kind of spurs the economy. It gets us out of a recession. If you cut interest rates back down to zero or 1% before we're in a recession, and then we go into a recession... What can you do to get out of that recession? There's not a lot of tools that that the Fed can use to get us out of the recession. So they like the fact that we're at five, five and a quarter percent because they know next time we we get into a bad economic situation, that's the lever that they can pull to get us out of it. Yep, and a lot of people, are, I'm one of them included, is like, let's just break it. Let's just break it and get be done with it. And and I think it's coming. Like, and I think yeah. it's actually in the multifamily space. I, I really do think that there's going to be some pain. And I already know people who are having pain and hand, you know not handing back the keys, but I think commercial is going to have a more impact than we think, or have more of a a role to play. Um, and and it just maybe because I'm involved in it day in day out that I you know I'm you know but but you know what else is out there the the, the sort of the SVB banks of the world or all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's funny. A lot of people think multifamily is in trouble. A lot of people think commercial is is going to cause big economic ripples. I am normally an eternal pessimist. Um, I'm, I've, I'm one of those people to use a cliche. I've predicted five out of the last two recessions. <laughs> and, and, and I really, I, I am an eternal pessimist. But for some reason, I'm a lot more optimistic right now than I have been in the last several years. 
And I do think we're going to see a downturn. I do think we're going to see a recession, but I don't think it's going to be very bad. I don't think multifamily is going to get hit. I can acknowledge that I'm just guessing like everybody else and I could absolutely be wrong. I'm going to go on record as saying, I, I think we've we've almost bottomed on multifamily in terms of cap rates and values. And I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, over the next couple of years, I think we're going to see a stagnation in real estate in general. This is worth mentioning. So with real estate prices so high, historically, what we see with, with real estate prices is they track inflation. And if you look at the inflation adjusted real estate values or, or the, if you overlay inflation with real estate prices for the last hundred years, basically the two lines are in sync. Now, from like 1997 to 2006, they got out of sync and, and housing values skyrocketed. But then after 2008, housing prices plummeted back down to that trend line. And then we get to 2013 and they skyrocketed again. And one of two things can happen. Either we can have a 2008 type event where real estate prices plummet back down to the trend line, or we can see real estate prices level off for a half a decade or even closer to a decade while the inflation trend continues to go up. And I'm more of the mind that we're not going to see a big drop in prices, that we're just going to see a, a, a stagnation, a flattening of real estate values over the next five to seven years while inflation catches up to those values. So mm. if, if I had to guess, and again, it's just a guess, but if I had to guess, I would say we've got five to seven years of, of basically flat real estate values. Interesting. I'd love to... Love to forecast out because it's uh, it's going to be very interesting here in the next couple of years, particularly if you're buying real estate today. With that being said, I love to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, question number one is, tell me what the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals. So I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking, but this this is my favorite daily habit. If I wake up in the morning and I feel like I'm not going to be productive, I take the morning off or the whole day off. There are a lot of people out there who feel like you've got to power through and you got to work every day and you've got to get up at 5 a.m. every day and, and it's it's this badge of honor. I'm one of those people that feels like if if it's not going to be my day, if it's a day that I'm just not in the right headspace to get work done, I'd rather take the day off, relax, come back the next day and be twice as sharp. Mm, it's very interesting. It's we're talking about the axeman in the woods and he keeps yep. he keeps he keeps chopping down trees with a blunt axe. And it's like, yep. why don't you just stop, sharpen the axe and then have, you know, then, then go again. You'll be you'll be more effective. So Absolutely. I love that. That's 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 the out of all the four hundred episodes I've done, I've never ever heard everyone say that. So so well it's always <laughs> something else. So so awesome stuff. Uh question number two is what's who's been the most influential person in your career? Somebody nobody has ever heard of. His name's Mike, and he was my boss back in the mid nineties. And he ended up being my mentor. He ended up helping me early in my tech career, basically mentored me. I, I moved 3,000 miles away from him, but he still ended up being my mentor for, for much of my tech career. When I left the tech industry and got into real estate, even though he knew nothing about real estate, he's a super smart business guy. And, and he's been a, a tremendous mentor for me over, over the past decade as well. So Mike, thank you. Nobody's ever heard of him, but he, he's... And that's the thing. A lot of times when you ask that question, I assume people try and think of a, a big name somebody. And, and the reality is a lot of us are, are influenced every day by people that nobody else has ever heard of. So appreciate those people. No, that's you're correct. And, and it's not you know the, the big names, as you say. It's just the some people might... Be influenced by some, you know, a sentence someone might say, and yeah. it could be an every average day person. So, um, you know, awesome stuff. In, in, question number three: In your business, what is the most influential tool that you use on on a daily basis? Ooh, that's a tough one. Other people, 
Mm. So, so your team employees, everybody. So one day I'm going to pick up the phone and call you Reed, because I'm going to be thinking of something. I'm going to say, Reed's going to have a good perspective on this. (laughs) And I've been very fortunate that people uh, often actually answer the phone when I call, not all of them. Some of them send me to voicemail, but a lot of people actually answer the phone when I call, but I, I do make a habit of if I'm in the middle of something and I'm struggling with perspective on something or trying to solve a problem, or I can't figure out how to analyze something, instead of going to a tool, I'll literally just pick up the phone and call somebody that I know who is smarter than I am and is not as close to the problem as I am. And I'll say, hey, can you help me? And so I think other people for me have have been the biggest tool that I've used. No, I, I completely agree. People, who we surround ourselves with, the advice we get you know, from other people, uh, the help they provide in terms of you know, moving the, the ball down the fairway is, is invaluable. So I really, really appreciate that. Uh, question number four, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure? It's funny because the biggest failure has, has been my successes. And so what I mean by that is um, I flipped houses for 10 years. I flipped 450 some houses. And the reason I kept flipping houses was because I was successful at it. I kept making money over and over and over and over. And I look back and the biggest regret I have in my entire career, whether it was tech or or real estate, is the fact that I flipped 450 houses. I wish I would have learned earlier the value of, of keeping assets and not selling them off because there are a lot of benefits besides just getting that big pot of cash when you sell something. And so I lost out on those benefits for 10 years over 450 houses. So if anything, my biggest failure was the, was the success I kept having with flipping houses because I didn't realize that I was I was making a big mistake. No, yeah. One of the things I, someone told me one time is hold forever if you can. Never sell. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I would tell anybody that wants to get into flipping houses, that's great. But for every three houses you flip, Keep one. Yep. Yep. Mate, last question. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? Absolutely. jscott.com. Letter J, scott.com. That'll link you out to my link tree that has uh, how you can connect with me, how you can invest with me, how you can listen to my podcast, how you can get access to uh, some of my tools and resources or anything else you might want to know. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on today's show. I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show. I think your perspective on everything from flipping houses to read to writing books, but really into how you become uh, a true uh, student of economics and your opinions on that, I think are really, really valuable. And one of the reasons I want to get you on today's show. And you know, we're all guessing here, but there are a lot of lessons to be learnt from history. And as you mentioned, 36 recessions over the last 100 odd years. So uh, we're definitely due for one, um, but depending on where, where that's going to come from is, is going to be interesting. So I'd love to get you on once we do have it again and see 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 if some of these uh, statements were, were correct or not. But again, thank you so much for jumping on today's show. Enjoy the rest of your day and we'll catch up very, very soon. Thanks, Reed. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam packed with some incredible advice from Jay. Please head over to www.jscott, that's just the letter J, S-C-O-T-T dot com to check out everything Jay is doing. Find out about his books. You can invest with him. Be in his sphere. He is a sphere, I should say. He is a absolute king in knowledge about everything to do with real estate and his perspective on the economy is really, really important in today's world and how it sort of is going to lay the path for you as you're starting to invest over the next you know, six to 12 months. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ. It's what we're all about here on this show. Easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. And we're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. 